Welcome to Global Answers. Please join us as we discuss the relevance of God's eternal word relating to events in this day and what it means to you. And now, your host, Jeff Jenkins. Greetings. Uh, glad so much to have you with us in the studio. Today we have some very special guests with us, uh, Professor Guillermo Gonzalez and Professor Stephen Strew. Stephen, you know he's been with us before uh, in other sessions. Uh, Guermo, this is his first time to be with us, and we're delighted, Guermo, to have you with us today. And uh, we have a myriad of questions for Guermo that we want to ask him. He's uh, an astrobiologist, studies the universe, and he has come to embrace, uh, in a sense, we would, the Christians would call it creationism. Guermo calls it intelligent design. Some of us, you will hear, use the term ID. Uh, Guermo, I got a question for you. Whatever got you to believe then? in an intelligent designer. How did that begin in, uh, in your studies? Tell us something also as well about your studies. Well, I uh, received my PhD in astronomy at the University of Washington in 1993, and I did work on uh, stellar spectroscopy, but then I uh, very quickly moved on to specialize in astrobiology, which is the study of life in the universe, even though we have no other example. Explain to us solar spectroscopy. 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 <laughs> Woo! That's a big so, Tell us about that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, basically, you look at the spectra of stars. Uh, a really good example of a spectrum is just the rainbow that you see after a thunderstorm. Oh, okay. And but astronomers can reproduce that with uh, a prism, for example, or a glass diffraction grating, and they can spread the color, white colors of, of a star's light out into the rainbow of colors. And uh, by studying it in detail, they can figure out what actually makes up a star. Well, the chemical elements in the star, its temperature, lots of things. So go on in and tell us what the other avenues of your studies take you to then. So uh, a few years into um, uh, my studies after my PhD, yeah. I, I moved into uh, astrobiology, uh, primarily uh, studying uh, planets around other stars called extrasolar planets. Okay. Uh, I applied my specialty of uh, spectroscopy into that area. And uh, I started studying the stars and found that uh, they're different. Uh, stars ah. with planets are different than other stars. And so that was an important discovery that I'm still trying to uh, pursue and understand. How many years then were you into your studies before you came to the thought? Or was it something always a part of you concerning intelligent design then? I've always been open to the possibility that there would be evidence of design in nature. Mm -hmm. uh, but I didn't find any uh, really convincing evidence until... Uh, about uh, three or four years after my PhD, so into the mid to late 1990s, um, and it was a result of uh, observing a total eclipse of the sun in India. Well, please tell us about that. I'm interested to know then. So by observing the total eclipse, something began to click inside yes. and said, this is just too perfect? Yes. A total eclipse is produced when you have uh, the moon covering up the sun and the sky uh, from an observer uh, situated on the Earth's surface. And so mm -hmm. you have to have the Earth, the Moon, and the Sun in a straight line of space. Mm -hmm. uh, but the remarkable thing about eclipses seen from Earth is that the Moon is just big enough and just far enough away so it perfectly covers the Sun, even though the Sun is 400 times bigger than the Moon and is 400 times farther away. <laughs> so there's this coincidence in angular sizes in the sky. And uh, that's been noticed for a long time, and people just sort of noticed it and then just shrug their shoulders and say, well, it's just a coincidence. You know, that's, you can't go any further than that. But I found a deeper uh, meaning or explanation for yes. it. And that is that the very conditions you need to produce a total eclipse of the sun also make a planet co conducive to life, uh, make a planet habitable, as, as astrobiologists call it. Uh, so the, you need to have a large moon, 
around a planet like the Earth to stabilize its rotation axis, as it turns out. If that weren't there, then the uh, rotation axis would wobble over a large range mm. of angles and cause large climatic variations. And the eclipse also makes the, uh, it makes it observable, is that right? That's right. It makes observable certain scientific discoveries. Uh, certain, we can do certain uh, experiments, uh, such as testing general relativity. That's probably the most famous example of the use of a solar eclipse uh, for learning something deep about the universe, namely uh, how gravity works. And mm. so Einstein in 1915, 1916, when he published his general theory of relativity, proposed uh, an experiment during an eclipse of the sun to test it. And that was provided the first test uh, which, which confirmed it, in fact. His, his theory passed it. And as a result, um, it was uh, very quickly accepted mm. by physicists because mm. it passed that important observational test. So he basically proposed that during a so solar eclipse, when you can see stars come yeah. out, uh, that uh, their positions would be shifted very slightly because of the gravity uh, of the sun as the starlight passed by it. And so it was actually observed mm. uh, to happen. So in other words, things are too perfect, aren't they? Too finely tuned? They're fine-tuned, so you, uh, if you compare the moon's size and its angular size on the sun, uh, compared to the sun's angular size on yeah. the sky, this is yeah. a perfect match between the moon and the sun, compared to all the other moons in the solar system around the other planets. Ours is the best match, as it turns out. Yeah. So it's a low probability event, it's very finely tuned, but not only that, but it's tied at the level of the laws of physics uh, to the requirements for life. So a planet mm. that's set up to have life, living creatures like us, is also going to be able uh, to observe uh, solar eclipses of the sun. So uh, the, the two are, are connected at, at a very deep level in, in the universe. Yeah, and, and, and that's that would a be an expected level. That, that yes. wouldn't be you wouldn't intuit that that's automatically. Right. That's right. There's no reason, just from chance alone, that the universe should be set up in this way. That's correct. So that the places that can have observers uh, can also observe uh, phenomena that allow them to test uh, important theories in physics and, and learn about the universe sure. in a very deep way. So then, um, Darwinism is a philosophy based on chance, is it not? It's based on chance and necessity, as it's called, mm -hmm. uh, acting together. So natural selection, uh, working on chance, on mutations in particular, uh, produces uh, all the life that we see on Earth, and it's all full diversity, at least that's the claim. Uh, you you use a term uh, in uh, The Privileged Planet, the book, both the book and the video, uh, the DVD, Irreducible Complexity, and I believe that... Uh, sort of explains and, and debunks to, to a degree uh, the uh, philosophy of Darwinism, doesn't it not? Yes, that's uh, an idea proposed by uh, biochemist Michael Behe. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea of irreducible complexity is that you have uh, biological structures uh, that can't be assembled by small incremental uh, steps, small changes, one small step at a time, accumulated over time to build a functioning system because for an irreducibly complex system, you have to have everything together at the same time for the thing to have function. Mm. Uh, so it could be selected for by Darwinian process. So, uh, for example, he gives the uh, example of a mouse trap, Michael Behe. Yeah. You need to have all the parts of a mouse trap together. It's a, uh, or otherwise it wouldn't be able to catch mice. So it's an example of an irreducibly complex structure. As I recall, the way that he phrased it was um, a uh, irreducibly complex uh, uh, mouse trap. Yeah. Is that when you take away one or more components of the mousetrap, you don't catch fewer mice, you just don't catch any mice any at all. Mice at all. And so it's something that isn't going to be functioning as a mousetrap if it isn't a complete mousetrap. And Darwin himself um, saw that in the mechanics of the eye, 
is that when he looked at the eye, he, he said it made him shudder to see the complexity of the eye and to think that that, in, according to his theory, would have been formed purely by, by natural processes. And he, uh, uh, Grimmer, perhaps you can enlarge on that a little, he didn't even know all the, the biochemical aspects of the eye. He was just looking at the purely mechanical part of the eye, and that made him shudder. What That's were right. the other things that... Uh, in the 19th century, mm -hmm. at the time that Darwin wrote his book on the origin of species in 1859, very little was known about the interiors of cells, about microscopic uh, structure, especially biochemical pathways, as they're called. Mm -hmm. um, the cell was opened up uh, by a biologist using powerful microscopes, such mm -hmm. as the electron microscope in the 20th century, and we discovered a, a, just a very complex set of uh, machinery inside the cell. And in fact, uh, Michael Behe named his book Darwin's Black Box mm -hmm. because the black box was the cell. <laughs> well. Okay, that's all it was, just a little blob of protoplasm, just a very simple thing made of jello, basically. Uh, but today, we know it's uh, quite different. Actually, it's an incredibly intricate and very complex uh, assembly factory where uh, the proteins uh, that are needed by the organism uh, are assembled uh, from the instructions encoded in the DNA, a digital information storage medium inside the cell. I wonder what Darwin would uh, do today in light of, and what he would perhaps believe and deduce today in light of modern technology. I, I yeah. realize that's philosoph philosophical, but I wonder what he would actually, he would have to, I would say, have to rethink his entire uh, process of, of, of evolution, would he not? I would hope so. Yeah. I would hope that he'd be open-minded enough to say that, well, the theory may have been pretty good at the day, uh, at my day in 1859 when I first proposed it, right. to explain what we... I knew at that time, but we've learned so much more since then, and uh, my theory obviously is proving inadequate. I, that's what I would hope he would say if, if he were yeah. alive today. Why is, um, why is the thought of creationism or ID, intelligent design, why is it such a bugaboo? Why is the political world, yeah. the academia, why are they so afraid of it? In, the, in, in a world of, of, of freedom of thought and freedom uh, of academia and learning more. Why is that such a problem in our day? I mean, for, for, yes. our, for politicians and for scientists alike. Yes. Uh, well, first of all, most people show embrace intelligent design right. uh, as legitimate. So the people who are really opposing it are, as you say, mostly people in academia. Hmm. And I, I think the reason for that is twofold. First of all, there's a perceived history of the conflict uh, between religion and science, and especially in the biological sciences with with a very rancorous history of uh, the creation-evolution debates over the 20th century. Yeah. And a lot of that history is really misreported. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, but that's part of it. The other part is that they've been told, since they were on their mother's knee, mm -hmm. that uh, they must practice what's called scientific materialism. Mm. That everything they see in nature, uh, uh, observe in nature as a scientist, must be explained in terms of material causes. Just chance and necessity, and nothing mm -hmm. else. Uh, so they must exclude the possibility of discovering anything that points beyond the universe, that points towards evidence of design and nature. So are they saying that as soon as we take that leap that we're operating in the realms of what the Christian would call faith? They're, they're claiming, yes, that uh, it's just a faith, leap of faith, mm -hmm. uh, or it's a religious statement, or it's intelligent design is faith-based. Uh, it's actually, what makes intelligent design so powerful, actually, is that it's not faith-based. Right. It doesn't start with any religious assumptions. Right. Uh, it doesn't have any uh, faith commitments to start with. Mm -hmm. All it says is, let's look out at nature, let's look at the evidence of nature, 
uh, and follow the evidence where it leads. Mm -hmm. If it leads us to evidence of design, then so be it. Yes. Then uh, we'll have to uh, uh, refine and update our theories accordingly. But we shouldn't exclude the possibility of discovering objective evidence of design because it violates our prior metaphysical commitments. Right. That's not real science. But see, that's what people who subscribe to scientific materialism are taught to believe. Mm -hmm. But I claim that's mistaken. That puts blinders on them. Yeah, so if the universe really exhibits evidence of design, they wouldn't know it. Because right. they would say, my philosophy prevents me from ever discovering, or at least accepting evidence of that sort in nature. I could never accept it as a scientific materialist. Good. And that's mm -hmm. not the true uh, way of doing science. I don't recall if it was Richard Dawkins, but somebody actually said that to his students, maybe to Stephen Jay Gould, even though we see what looks like design, we have to choose to ignore, to ignore yeah. that. Do you remember that yes. statement? Uh, basically, it's not true design that we are seeing in nature, but people like Richard Dawkins would say it's apparent design. And so he would have to explain it in terms of, of Darwinian Natural evolution, processes. for example. Uh, no matter how unlikely the mechanism or unlikely the scenario, uh, that's, see, that's the only option. Because mm -hmm. design in the uh, mind of Richard Dawkins and other scientific materialists is excluded from science, just by definitional fiat. There's no logical or deductive reason why science <laughs> should be defined that way. Yeah. It's just their prejudices, frankly. And, and, and again, the, the, just for, again for our audience, yeah. I think sometimes these terms can be a little uh, forbidding. The, the, what intelligent design theorists have done is they've gone beyond the material world of matter and energy and they've included uh, information as a third fundamental. Do you want to speak yes. on, on that? That they're basically not just two ways of explaining everything we see in nature, not just chance acting on necessity, mm -hmm. uh, on simple laws, mm -hmm. but information uh, and intelligence. Mm -hmm. uh, information is generated by intelligent agents. Mm -hmm. And that's a third category that you cannot reduce to uh, just chance acting uh, with necessity. And so uh, mathematician William Dembski has actually developed a way of detecting design in nature objectively. Mm -hmm. And he calls it the, the, the design filter. So if you can eliminate uh, explanations based on low probability and eliminate uh, law-like explanations for them, then you're only left with one possible explanation, and that's intelligent design. And things that are designed always contain uh, inf information. They're information-rich structures. That's what I noticed in uh, the Plebis Planet video was the flagellum and uh, looking at that intricate motor. Yeah. Uh, the bacterial flagellum was described in the video, uh, Unlocking the Mystery of Life. All right. Uh, and that's really, it's an amazing biological structure. When you look at it, yeah. and especially if you see an animation of it, uh, it literally looks like, like a human-engineered electric yeah. motor. I, I was amazed. Uh, and it's got all the parts of yeah. an electric motor. Uh, upward and, motor. That's right, yeah. an upward motor. Yeah. And uh, with a, a shaft, propeller, and, and everything. And... Uh, and of course, this was discovered after human motors were invented. So <laughs> we had motors that we engineers had built for decades, and then they took an electron microscope image of the flagellum that's attached to the bacterium, and say, hey, look, there's a little motor attached to it. And so just visually, it's, it's, it's a very stunning thing to discover this, this uh, device, this machine inside yeah. the cell. And as it turns out, it is irreducibly complex. As Mike Behe explained in his book, Darwin's Black Box, so you take one piece away from it, and the thing ceases to function. And any piece, not just 
any one piece, but any piece from it, and the thing ceases to function. So it's and unlikely that a uh, Darwinian step-by-step yeah. -step process could have gotten to it. I'm amazed, the average layman, including myself, uh, how little I understand about the uh, concepts of the Darwinian theory. But intelligent design, and particularly irreducible complexity, is the, the, very, the very thought that places big holes and gaps in Darwinian theory, doesn't it? Yeah, it, basically, intelligent design says that the scope of Darwinian uh, processes is limited. Right. They've oversold it. They're trying to explain more than it really can. Mm -hmm. It can explain simple things like the change in size of animals mm -hmm. over time or the change in the shape of the fink, uh, finch beaks uh, yeah. on the Galapagos Islands. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's not, it, it just doesn't seem capable of explaining the origin of the uh, finches in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> it's a huge leap to go from observing very tiny changes in nature uh, to saying that those tiny changes can be extrapolated all the way to the origin of life. I got a question here, and let me see if I can find it because I got many. If, if good science is based on practical empirical study, then what according to Darwinists is unintelligent, unintelligent about intelligent design? What, what, from the Darwinian thought, why are they so opposed? Is it, is it simply a bias? Or why are they so opposed to the concept of uh, information and intelligence behind it? Yeah. Uh, I think there's so much opposition uh, primarily from Darwinists to intelligent design because it, uh, they think it lets the, define, the d divine foot back in, okay, uh, in the door. Okay. And okay. so there, many of them have accepted a, a, a philosophy of materialism as basically their worldview, their belief system. So they feel and, that maybe you're politicizing uh, this and trying to bring God back into the they think, uh, faith back into it's science. A, that's right. They think it's a, a stealth strategy ah. to bring God uh, back into science where it's illegitimate, where it doesn't belong. Uh, but uh, I, I would answer that, well, first of all, I'm just following the evidence wherever it leads. There you go. Uh, in nature. And if it leads towards a designer, so be it. So be it. Uh, that's just, we want to learn the truth about the universe. And that's really science at its core, is just learning the truths about the universe, letting the universe speak for itself. Now, what about uh, the idea and concept that uh, both intelligent design and evolution can coexist in, to some degree? Where, where, where would you yes. agree or disagree on that thought? There's various levels of possible overlap and agreement between the two. Mm -hmm. uh, intelligent design is compatible with different forms of evolution. Uh, the form of evolution that is completely incompatible with would be a form of evolution that says that uh, everything is unguided. There's mm -hmm. no planning involved whatsoever, and uh, the history of life is completely materialistic, explainable in terms of materialistic uh, causes. Mm. Uh, so it, it, it depends from uh, individual to individual where the, they would say they fall okay. in terms of believing Darwinism and uh, believing intelligent design. And so uh, my view is that Darwinism has been oversold. Mm -hmm. And there's much that it can't explain, and uh, we need another explanation. Intelligent mm -hmm. design is it. Uh, we're, we're running out of time, but I've got another question to ask you, and Stephen can interject as well. Uh, being a minister, I'm a proponent of an old earth. Yes. I, I believe, of course, in a God and a creator, yeah. and, uh, and a proponent of an old earth. And yet uh, we have, uh, in 68, one of the reasons that they took a creationism out of the public arena, out of academia, was because uh, creationism at that time as a whole 
uh, looked more towards a young Earth as, to an old, as opposed to an old Earth. So being a proponent of old Earth, I'm interested from a scientific perspective mm -hmm. uh, as to why you came to a similar conclusion. Yes, I have also uh, believe that the Earth is very old, billions of years old, and mm -hmm. the universe is billions of years old uh, from the scientific evidence. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I've also uh, read what uh, theologians and Bible scholars, uh, leading Bible scholars, have set, uh, written about the Bible. Mm -hmm. uh, Hebrew philologists, for example. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are no problems with uh, interpreting the Bible in an old earth uh, perspective. Um, there's nowhere in the Bible that you can say it teaches definitely that the earth is 6,000 or 10,000 years old. Mm -hmm. uh, that's an interpretation, yep. and frankly, given our current understanding of, of the text in ancient Hebrew, I think it's an interpretation actually doesn't fit the text, right, right. the view that the earth is very young. In the beginning, God created, period. And then yes. we really don't know uh, after that creation uh, whether there was prior civilization, prior life forms that were previously judged, uh, the dinosaur aids, all the things that went on uh, before Adam and Eve were ever placed on yes. the earth. Uh, there was so much going on in the way of life and geology and everything before Adam and Eve were ever placed yeah. on the earth. So the earth is old. Adam and Eve may be relatively new, but earth is old. Yes, I, I think uh, one can feel very comfortable uh, holding the scriptures in a very high regard mm -hmm. uh, and yet also accepting the scientific view of the old earth from geology and astronomy. Uh, and, and there are hints in the Bible that that, that the ordinary, ordinary day interpretation is probably not the way to go, such as the uh, events of the sixth day. They couldn't have been fit into a 24-hour period. Right. And the seventh day, God's day of rest, is ongoing. And that's obviously at least a few thousand years yeah. in duration so far. So right. if those two days can't be ordinary 24 hours, then it's likely that the other days are probably not ordinary 24-hour periods either. I, th I think what happens, though, in the young earth uh, mindset is that um, any time we say, well, God can't do this. In other words, we look at the events of the six and say, that, mm. couldn't, that could not happen. Well, God can do anything. And one of the things that, they've, that uh, I've heard repeated over and over is the fact that uh, God could give the universe an appearance of age. He could, uh, he could make rocks look old. And uh, the, the, uh, the justification for that that they use is that Adam was uh, full grown when he was formed from the dust of the ground. God didn't have to bring him up through uh, babyhood. So he had the appearance of, 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 a, of an adult, and yet uh, he, was, uh, he didn't have a history. And so the universe has the appearance of age, but they claim it doesn't have a history. The counterpoint to that, and I wonder if you would agree with this, Guillermo, is that uh, Adam was still brand new. He wasn't old. Mm -hmm. he, had, he, he was made brand new as an adult. Mm -hmm. And so when God creates things, they start off brand new. Mm -hmm. And then he started to uh, go through a, uh, a chronological time period. We wouldn't say he gets old until after he sins. Mm -hmm. But at least there's a chronological time period from that starting point. But just because uh, he is uh, a, a, an adult right. doesn't make him old, which is what the universe shows, uh, am I right, uh, characteristics of age, not just yeah. of, uh, of, of maturity. And, and I, I would say that another problem with that was saying that God created the universe with the appearance of age. By the way, that, that theory appeared in the mid-1800s, uh, a fellow named Goss, um, uh, G-O-S-S-E, I believe, and um, in a book called Amphalos. And uh, so it's a creation of apparent age. 
It makes God into a deceiver right. for the following reason. Mm -hmm. uh, we see the starlight coming from distant stars and galaxies, and not only that, but we see events such as supernovae, stars that explode. If they are really millions of light years away, which is what we measure them to be today, that means God's had to create the light already on its path to mm. the earth. Mm -hmm. And so these events that we see happening today actually should have occurred millions of years ago, but if the earth is only 6,000 years old, that means God created false history with the light already on its way to the earth. Right. So God would be the author of deception and false falsehoods. Mm -hmm. And so I see as that, that as a very, having very deep theological problems, uh, the creation of a parent age. I'm a pastor, I believe, in uh, the scriptures being revealed to uh, mankind by, by revelation, not so much uh, alone by science and intelligent thought, uh, many a wise and prudent man uh, had missed uh, the star uh, that the Magi's were able to see concerning right. Christ. So we're not trying to, uh, to convince you that through science that you can become a believer in God. That's not Guillermo's intention whatsoever. But science perhaps can tell us that there is a designer, that, that there is somebody that was uh, fraught with information and every cell has information in it and every... A uh, living organism has information in it, and that takes us beyond just the mechanics. And so we've got so much more that we want to cover. We want to talk about the Big Bang Theory, Grandma. We want to talk about, I got another question, and, what is, and, and maybe you can answer this in the next 30 seconds, and we'll maybe elaborate next time. What is the most compelling example of design in the universe? Well, I think it's the universe itself, frankly. Yeah. And the universe speaks to evidence of design, and the way it's actually made up the, the actual laws of physics that govern the operation of the universe itself point to a designer point beyond itself so it's the whole universe i think is the best how interesting let's talk about that more and uh, we've enjoyed our time with grandma and with stephen and we will begin another session here in just a little while thank you very much god bless intelligent design is a big topic these days it's in the magazines on the newspapers just everywhere you look it's intelligent uh, design that same intelligence that designed the universe is the same one that designed a plan of salvation. What you've seen today is the first in a series of three. I hope you'll be back with us and join us for the balance of these programs of the greatest designer ever, God of the Bible. Today's program is one in a three-part series available on a DVD entitled The Select Planet. During the program, Brother Jeff Jenkins mentioned two timely documentaries. The first, The Privileged Planet, uses animation, interviews, and stunning images of the cosmos to explore today's topic in depth. The second, Unlocking the Mystery of Life, looks at the complexity of life and the question, what brought all of this into existence? All of these DVDs may be obtained by visiting us on the web at globalanswers.us and clicking on the Resource Center link. You may also write to us at Global Answers at 1695 Stewart Road in Lima, Ohio, 45801 in the USA. We'd love to hear from you. Email your questions or comments to us at info at globalanswers.us. Thank you for joining us, and may our Lord Jesus Christ richly bless you.